Our scripture reading today comes from Acts 13, 1 through 12. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Thank you, Brady, for reading our scripture passage today. We're continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts, and the narrative in Acts 13 picks up where Acts 11 ended. Uh, Christians in Antioch had gathered together an offering and taken it to the church in Jerusalem to help them during a period of persecution and famine. And in Acts 12, 25, which we didn't read, we read how Barnabas and Saul had returned from Jerusalem to Antioch with John Mark, who is in our passage as well. Let me pray and then we'll dive right into our sermon. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it is a light in the darkness. It is a guide for our path that you've given it to us to strengthen, encourage, comfort us. We pray that you would speak to us right now, Holy Spirit. Speak to us in our hearts as we hear this message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to be set apart for a purpose? We might think of a farmer who sets apart a portion of his crop to grow into seeds. You see, when a farmer harvests, he harvests most of his plants from the field, but he often will leave at least back before you could buy seeds at Home Depot, he would leave a portion of the harvest to grow, to grow and develop seeds. 
you see after the uh, fruit comes and the, heart, the plant keeps growing, it develops seed pods often from which he will take the seed pods and then keep those back for next year to plant again. He has set apart some of the plants for a purpose or he has set apart some of the wheat because wheat is seeds for a purpose to put in the ground and bring forth future harvests. As we have noted before, the whole big theme of the book of Acts is the mission of God accomplished by the Holy Spirit through his people, his people that have been set apart for a purpose. This mission is necessary because though salvation has come through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, people don't know. People can't believe unless they are told, and they can't be told unless others go. And so God has set apart his people for a purpose. This is obvious in the book of Acts, and it's present throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. In Ephesians 2, Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We have been set apart as a people to do the good works that God has prepared for us. The entire Bible witnesses to this, that God saves and sets apart his people for his mission. The mission of gospel proclamation of the world, the mission of good deeds of justice and mercy and love of our neighbors. And we see this in our passage as well. The Antioch church is gathered in worship, praying and worshiping their God. And as they are worshiping the Lord, the Spirit speaks to them in verse 2 and says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the big idea which we're going to explore today is that God has set us apart for his work. So we should step out in faith-filled obedience. God has set us apart for his work. And so we should step out in faith-filled obedience. What does that faith-filled obedience look like? In our passage, we see that it looks like prayerful preparation, Holy Spirit support, and discerning courage. So we're going to explore those three big ideas today. The first big idea, prayerful preparation. The first way we see these early Christians step out in faith-filled obedience is by praying. In verse 3, after Barnabas and Paul are set apart by the Holy Spirit for God's mission work, the first missionary journey, the church prepares by fasting, praying, and laying hands on Barnabas and Saul. We're not told how long they fasted and prayed, but it was obviously more than just one meal, most likely. They're fasting and praying for this work that God has called Barnabas and Saul to. Not only do the pray, they pray, uh, not only do they prepare for the set apart work by praying, but their very mission work itself comes in the midst of worship and prayer. In verse 2, they're worshiping and praying together as the corporate church when God speaks to them and says, Go and do this work. God works through prayer, not only to answer our requests, but also to guide us and shape us. But too often we do not view prayer as the work that God has called us to do. Throughout the book of Acts, God's people pray at key moments. When Samaria, uh, sorry, God, they pray at key moments, replacing Judas in chapter one, Judas the apostle with Matthias. They pray at initial opposition in chapter four, when the whole Jewish leaders are opposed against them. They're praying for boldness. In chapter six, when they realize the need for deacons, they pray for who God will set apart. When Samaritans first believe in chapter 8, Peter and John went to Samaria to pray for them that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Peter, in the midst of praying, 
was told in a vision to take the gospel to the first Gentile believers in Acts 10. In Acts 12, the Christians are gathered together in prayer while Peter is awaiting execution in prison. On top of these examples, the narrative of Acts again, uh, the narrative of Acts repeats again and again about how the early Christians devoted themselves to prayer. And in, throughout the New Testament, there's repeated commands to us as Christians to make our lives lives of prayer. For example, in Colossians 4, Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. We as Christians are to be people of prayer. As we step out in faith, it is of paramount importance to pray, but too often it is the second, third, or even fourth thought. We would never put it this way, but too often we arrogantly think, I have way too much to do. I can't spend wasteful time in prayer, but how often is that what our actions convey? Martin Luther, who was incredibly busy in his work, is quoted as having said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. It was the most important thing, and he devoted lots of time to it. We as Christians are called in the Bible to pray over so many things. We're called to praise the Lord in prayer. We're called to give joyful thanks We're called to confess and repent our sins individually and corporately. We are called to bring grief-filled lamentations to the Lord in prayer when our hearts are broken about ours and the people's around us situation. We are called to pray for God's church from its mission, new people believing in God, the church's leaders, its peace, its purity, its unity. We are called to pray for these things. We are called to pray for so many different requests that we as creatures Human creatures who live in a broken, fallen world will inevitably, unavoidably have our fight against our particular sins that we individually struggle with. We're called to pray about that. We're called to pray for those who have sickness and disease. We're we're called to pray for our loved ones who don't know the Lord yet. We're called to pray for our work, our children, our government, its leaders. We're called to pray for the world around us and the many things, just as Bill did this morning. John Onuochequa, he is a pastor in Atlanta, has a wonderful book on prayer, and in it he writes, prayer is breathing. There's no better metaphor of what prayer should be for the Christian. Prayer is breathing. It is essential to life. Have you ever tried to hold your breath for a long time? Maybe when you were a little kid, or maybe when you were an adult and playing with your kids in the pool, you have tried to hold your breath underwater as long as you could. Do you remember what that was like? Who could barely make it past a minute? Probably many of us here. Stig Severinsen, a Danishman, has the unique distinction of being the world record holder for holding his breath underwater. This Danish superhuman held his breath for 22 minutes while underwater. 22 minutes! But even this superhuman can't survive forever without breathing. With that 22 point one second came, he had to come up for air. Just as we cannot live more than a few minutes, unless you're Stig, just as we cannot live for a few minutes without breathing, we should not try to live the Christian life without praying. It is essential for our life. We need it. Do you treat prayer as essential for your life? Do you treat it as something that you can't do without, like breathing? Too often, I know I don't. 
Too often I will be deep into a project or a difficult situation and I will realize, oh, I haven't even prayed yet. Due to our sinful separation from God, we have come to think as people who are independent. Prayer shows ourselves and the watching world that we are dependent creatures, that we have a God who created us and we need. How do you cultivate an active prayer life? What do you do? A first step is to realize that prayer is about relationship. Relationship with our God and creator. In an excellent book about prayer by Tim Keller, Tim Keller uses the illustration of two roommates. He says, he writes, imagine that you are rooming with someone and he or she virtually doesn't speak to you. All she does is leave messages. When you mention it to her, she says, well, I don't get much out of talking to you. I find it boring and my mind is flitting around to other things. And so I just don't even try. Would you, would you possibly, would you really say that to a person? No, but we treat the God of the universe who created us for a relationship with him in that manner as a roommate that we don't even really want to talk to. Or if we do talk to them, we just bring our requests and lists of demands to them. We have a relationship with the creator of the universe. We have the privilege of talking to him whenever we want. That is incredible. Once you realize that prayer is about relationship, you can begin to pursue it. It may start out as a duty, but it will develop over time into a delight. One way that I have found it helpful for my own life to cultivate a, a, a vibrant prayer life is by praying, just doing it, praying, and over time, God will develop in you an appreciation and a deeper love for it. It's like muscles. If you don't actively work them, they become flap, flop, flappy, floppy, <laughs> lazy, and flabby, yeah, thank you, flabby, and unable to be used. One simple, helpful guide to many of my prayers is acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Praying over all of these things is important. If your prayers are entirely focused on supplication, you're neglecting a great richness that will deepen your relationship with the Lord. So I encourage you to try to spend some time each day in adoration, praising God for who he is and what he's done. Thanksgiving, thanking him for all the many good gifts that you personally have received from him. Confession, confessing the ways that your sins have broken your relationship with God. And then supplication, asking him for his help, which he delights to give us. One area that we as American Christians often neglect is communal prayer, praying together. We are entirely too individualistic. Here at EP, we have a group that meets the first Sunday of every month, Pray First. It's uh, wonderful to gather together, even virtually, as God's people, and pray together. Even if you come to the virtual meeting and all you do is listen and pray along silently your heart, it is of great benefit to you and others to be there together praying. So I encourage you, go to our website, epanapolis.org, find the events section, and there's a way to sign up for the Pray First email and join us in prayer. The early Christians in Acts prayed constantly, but especially at key moments. We here at EP are in a few key moments. We are beginning a pastoral search process, and so I encourage us, let us pray for God's guidance. Let us pray for his leading in this time. Let us bathe this whole process in prayer. Another key moment that we, and not just EP, but the entire American church finds itself in, is that we are slowly coming out of the pandemic. But everybody is recognizing that the negative detrimental impacts 
of the pandemic will be felt not just for months, but for years. There are ways economically, educationally, relationally, that this pandemic has harmed American people and society that's gonna be playing out for years to come. Let us pray as a church and individually for opportunities to be used by God in the midst of this, in the midst of the hurt that the people of Annapolis are feeling. Let us pray for his guidance. The second way we see these early Christians step out in faith is by their reliance on the Holy Spirit. In verse two, we read how the Holy Spirit speaks to those gathered in worship, setting apart Barnabas and Saul. They were ready and waiting and listening for the Holy Spirit's guidance. In verse four, we see that they are sent out by the Holy Spirit to Cyprus, where they begin to boldly proclaim the word of God. Though it does not say it directly, we know from the entire biblical witness that the Holy Spirit was present, working through Saul, Barnabas, John, Mark, as they spoke in the synagogues, as they boldly proclaimed the gospel, the Holy Spirit was working through their words and in people's hearts. In verse 9, we see Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking out against the false prophet, Bar-Jesus. The Holy Spirit often guides us and supports us in our life and ministry and gives us the words to speak, prompts us at the moment that we need to say something. And we see in verse 12, the result of that, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, in our passage, sees the miracle done by Saul, and he believes. And we know from the entire Bible that belief comes only by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present throughout our passage, working in every moment. This work of the Holy Spirit is also present throughout the book of Acts. Just as we earlier saw Christians actively praying before key moments, we see the Holy Spirit present and working at key moments in the kingdom of God, going to new places. In Acts 2, the Spirit comes down on the people of God at Pentecost, and a great many people believe. In Acts 4, it says Peter is filled with the Spirit as he boldly speaks before the Jewish religious leaders. In Acts 6, the apostles choose deacons who are filled with the Spirit. In Acts 7, Stephen is said to have been filled with the Spirit as he boldly preaches before the murderous mob right before they stone him. In Acts 8, Peter prays for the new Samaritan believers and a people that is distinct from Jews and had for centuries been divided by hate, receives the Holy Spirit. In Acts 8, again, the Spirit tells Philip to go to the Ethiopian eunuch and hop up in his chariot and start sharing the gospel. And in Acts 10, the Spirit comes to the first Gentile believers while Peter is explaining the gospel. And Peter and all of the Christians with him and back in Jerusalem are just dumbfounded and amazed. The Holy Spirit works in amazing ways, and he's constantly working. Throughout our passage, throughout the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit working in, through, and around the early Christians. This is the reality for all who are set apart by God for his mission work. As we step out in faith-filled obedience, we are supported and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I love to go swimming with my children. I love to teach them to swim. I love to watch them when they first jump in that water. I have great memories of taking my children when they were very young and going to swimming pools. And just the fear, excitement, and joy in the mixture that a little kid has when they first go in the swimming pool is amazing to watch. My daughter, Noelle, she was the lucky one of the three. She has this amazing life swimming swimming life vest. It's like floaties on steroids. It's not just on the arms, but it's across the chest. She can wear this, and I have literally picked her up 
and tossed her into the pool and she just bobs right up. She's supported by this life vest. Without it, it's a fearful experience of getting in the water when you don't know how to swim. With it, she has the utmost confidence swimming around the pool with no worries in the world. As she is supported by this life vest, she confidently, boldly swims around the pool without any worries. As we go through life, seeking to step out in faithful obedience, to live as God's set-apart people on a mission, let us live and walk with the utmost confidence because we have the support of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of each one of us, walking alongside us, guiding us, empowering us. We do not need to fear anything, no matter how deep the waters that we swim through. In our modern American context, thank you, in our modern American context, especially in churches like our own, in our tradition, we often neglect the Holy Spirit. We think of him as a subservient, lesser member of the Trinity. Sometimes we even depersonalize him, thinking of him as a force or a power, but he is very God. He is the third person of the Trinity, worthy of our worship, and he is a person who incredibly, amazingly is dwelling inside each one of us if we are a believer in Jesus Christ. What should we do? How should we interact? We should seek to know him better. We should study God's word and understand what it has to say about who the Holy Spirit is. We should pray to him, asking him for help. We should invite him into every single moment of every single day, asking for his guidance, asking for his clear vision, and we should rely on him in every single day and moment, as we seek to fight sin, he will empower us as we seek to boldly go forth on his mission of proclaiming the gospel to our hurt world. He will give us words to speak. As Christians, we are called to live spirit-filled lives. In Ephesians 5, Paul encourages Christians, be filled with the spirit. In Galatians 5, he similarly tells them to walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And in that same passage in Galatians 5, he goes on to encourage the, them to turn away from their sinful desires and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is just two passages, but throughout the New Testament, we are called to be filled with the Spirit. We are called to walk by the Spirit. How does that look like? What does that look like in our lives? It looks like exactly what I said before. It's knowing him, knowing who he is from the Bible, praying to him, asking him that he might guide us in every single day and moment. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. But there are moments when we are more aware and less aware to his prompting and guidance. When we have unconfessed sin, it's even more difficult to interact with the Holy Spirit. So prayer, confession, inviting him is of extreme importance. The third and final way we see these disciples in our passage step out in faith-filled obedience is through discerning courage. First, we see this in their choice of where to go. Saul and Barnabas were sent to the island of Cyprus. This was an island in the, island in the Mediterranean, a little bit of a distance, about 160 miles, I believe, from Antioch. But this was a logical place for their first missionary journey to take place. They used their wisdom and discernment that God had given them to decide where to go. Why was it that case? In Acts eleven nineteen, we know that some of the early Christians spread out from Jerusalem after the death of Stephen 
to Cyprus to preach the gospel. And so Cyprus had prior gospel exposure. There were seeds that had been planted, and it was a logical, wise place to go to preach the gospel. We also know that Barnabas had family connections in Cyprus. In Acts 4, it tells us how Barnabas was a native of Cyprus, and he actually had a field there that he sold in order to help the early church in Jerusalem. And so these early Christians were wise and discerning in knowing where to go on their first missionary journey. They went to a place where the gospel had been proclaimed. They went to a place where they had connections, and they proclaimed the gospel there. We also need to be wise and discerning as Christians both individually and as a church, on where and how we do ministry. God has given us wisdom, and his Holy Spirit will refine us so that we can use that wisdom for his kingdom. Second, another way we see that they are discerning and courageous is in their gospel proclamation. In verse 5, we see how they go to the synagogue of the Jews first. The Jews would have had a biblical background, a knowledge of the Bible that would have made it easier for them to understand the gospel. There would have been less explaining that they would, than they would have had to do to the Gentile world. And so this actually became a pattern that all early Christians followed, is they would go to synagogues first to proclaim the gospel, both because the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, and all the people of the Jewish people had been made, but also because it was a wise place to go, to go and proclaim the gospel to people who would understand it more readily. So they would always go, the early Christians would always go to the synagogues first, and then to the God-fearing Gentiles that surrounded the synagogues, and then finally to the farther away pagan world that had no clue at all about the Bible. This was discerning and wise. And then in verses 6 through 12, we see Saul and Barnabas preaching the gospel to the proconsul. This was the leader of the island. He, uh, he was incredibly influential and powerful, um, but he also had some guy following him around called Bar-Jesus or Elimas. He had two names. This was a false prophet, but also a magician. And Saul uses discernment and courage in opposing this man. This magician and false prophet uh, was with the Proconsul, we don't really know what their relationship. Maybe they were, a, uh, maybe he was a confidant. Maybe he was a, an advisor. Maybe he was just a hanger-on who followed him around. But most likely, he was uh, of some importance in relationship because he feels like he can speak out against Saul and try to dissuade uh, the proconsul from believing. Saul uses discernment and courage here as we see him speak out against Elimas, the false prophet. Uh, he boldly says in verses, um, in verses uh, 9 through 11, he boldly calls him a son of villainy. He boldly says, you are speaking evil. Um, he knew that this guy was standing in the way of the proconsul believing and having faith, but he doesn't back down. So another principle we can see from this, this whole passage is that we as Christians need to be discerning and courageous in our faithful obedience. Despite the fact that the proconsul, if he was filled with anger at this manner of speaking, could have put Paul, Saul, and Barnabas in prison, Saul didn't back down. He spoke the reality of what this false prophet was doing. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus, right before he sends out his disciples on a missionary journey, he tells them, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and as, as innocent as doves. We as Christians are called to use wisdom and discernment as we approach life. 
We are called to use it as we approach the mission God has given us. We can do this um, and not shrink back in fear because we have the Holy Spirit to give us confidence and support. In the early 20th century, the southern United States was experiencing a very difficult time. Centuries of chronic uh, uh, cotton production had produced chronic soil depletion so that it was a wasteland. The soil was depleted of all vital nutrients and they could hardly grow anything. They couldn't grow cotton and they could hardly grow any agricultural products. It was a desperate situation that was causing many people to go into bankruptcy, to lose their farms, and to even starve. And into this situation stepped a man, George Washington Carver, who was born a slave, but through hard work, intelligence, had become highly educated and was a scientist at the Tuskegee University. He was instrumental in helping Southern farmers understand the importance of crop rotation. He also helped promote the use of peanuts and sweet potatoes, which are now essential in many Southern uh, dishes, uh, but were not widely grown at that time. He promoted them as alternative crops that, uh, when used, would put nutrients back in the soil and allow for a number of years down the road, cotton production to resume. So Carver was very discerning in how he approached this. He would, uh, over a course of four decades at Tuskegee, he would publish tons of bulletins that would go out to farmers and inform them and educate them about how to do this crop rotation and what to plant. He would uh, have mobile units that would go around the farmlands and teach people about crop rotation and things like this. And he experimented with a great many products, peanuts and sweet potatoes, that you could make um, from, he, he experimented with a great many products that were made from peanuts and sweet potatoes and promoted them as a way for these people to make money and live. And he also published over a hundred food recipes. <laughs> um, and so he saw this difficult situation that people were in that was in some cases a matter of life and death and he used discernment and wisdom and how to approach it and courage in speaking out to address the problem. We as Christians have the most amazing news. Better news than how to save your farm, better news than what Carver had. Are we, in a similar manner, using discernment and wisdom and boldly, courageously speaking out about the solution that God has provided for all of humanity's true ills? We need to develop discernment. How do we do that? We do it first by studying God's word, digging into it so that we can have God's wisdom and evaluate life with that. Second, we need to understand the worldview of the culture that we live in, the people that are around us. Saul was incredibly knowledgeable about both Jewish and Greek cultures. He knew the philosophies, he knew the teachings, and so he could interact in dialogue with false prophets like Bar-Jesus and Roman proconsuls like Sergius Paulus. He knew both worlds. We need to do that as well. And how do we do that? We do it by becoming friends with non-Christians, asking them questions, exploring their worldview. We do it by examining the culture and philosophy and media of our day. We read the news, we interact with articles, we learn what people around us who aren't Christians think. But we do it with wisdom and discernment based off of God's word. We read Christian books that take biblical principles and apply them to our specific context and situation. Our culture is so incredibly divided, and so uh, a couple of books that I've read recently that are incredibly helpful in that regard is A Gentle Answer by Scott Sauls, where he talks about our divided culture and how Christians can step into that and bring peace and unity. Or uh, a book on 
a community that breaks down barriers called The Beautiful Community by Erwin Ince. We need to be reading books that take the difficult situations that we're in and apply Christian principles to them so that we can take the Bible and apply it to our situation. That will help us individually develop discernment in our own lives. And finally, we develop discernment by praying, praying that the Holy Spirit will guide us and help us to understand the times we live in and apply them and apply the Bible to them. As we prayerfully step out in faith, filled and guided by the Holy Spirit, we will have discernment and courage more and more. Courage comes from the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, as Jesus said he would give us words to speak when we were before the different leaders of our day. Courage comes from trust that the Lord is God, that his protection, his provision, his kingship over all the earth is true. As we grow in the wisdom of the Lord, which leads to discernment, we will also grow in courage. So in conclusion, in Jesus Christ, we have been saved from sin and death into a relationship with our creator and our God. God has set us apart for our work, the work of his mission to take this wonderful news of the gospel to the world. And we need to step out in faith-filled obedience to be part of that mission. And as we do that, let us prayerfully prepare for what faces us. Let us rely on the spur of the Holy Spirit and let us use discernment and courage in each moment of our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word, which has guided and strengthened us. We pray, Lord God, that you might work in every moment to help us know how to step out in faith-filled obedience to be your people who take your message of love and hope to the world. We pray that you would speak through us as we interact with our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, so that we might boldly proclaim your gospel, boldly do deeds of mercy and justice, and we might love our neighbors ourselves so that more and more people believe and are saved. We thank you, Lord God, that you have given us this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.